0: It's time for the December 16, 2022 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Underdog Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm
1: Mike Kaspar.
0: And as always... The inventor of the Elon Musk chew toy, Mahler, the fake news dog. <laughs> good morning, Mahler. Very good. Order right. me a
1: half a dozen of those, Mahler. Will you please? Yeah, yeah I want a half to. a dozen. I'll chew on them myself. How's that? Right? Yeah, I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Half dozen.
0: dozen. Or two dozen. <laughs> yeah, why not? Sure. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> we're up in the sales. Yes. Today we'll be talking about firmageddon, the cancer vaccine, the last 747, Thomas Pynchon, and even more than that. Wow, that's a lot of ground to cover. But first, Hmm? did you ever chew gum, Mike?
1: Oh, there was a, yes, a stretch in my early teens, Uh late, late aughts, early teens, I chewed a lot of gum, yeah yeah what, what kind did you choose well i was a double bubble guy and, double bu- so you did bubbles a, a, bu- a bazooka joe uh, yeah. Uh, yeah those were my those were my go-to
0: so you could blow the bubbles oh yeah, yeah. love the bubbles yeah yeah, yeah. Did, were you did you like uh, engage in any competition with bubble you know blowing?
1: casual uh casual competition and yeah. again with my yes. friends you not know. the majors not i didn't get i didn't graduate to any sort of tournament level yeah. bubble blowing but uh, i was i yeah i could blow up Competent, competent bubble.
0: So you like the flavor of the double bubble? And the yeah, I guess I did. It
1: was sugar. sugar. Yeah, sugar. <laughs> it, was it was a lot of sugar in it. But I, I just liked it because ball players were always chewing on something. And that, yeah. that was, those were my well, items. Well, that was
0: usually it. tobacco. Yeah,
1: I know. But I didn't know that. I thought they were just... They were chewing gum. Chewing Double gum, gum. bubble. Double. Well, some of them blow bubbles.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. they get up there. They're yeah. At bat. Yeah. And they blow a big bubble yeah. right before they settle in. Yeah,
1: yeah. How about yourself? Are you a bubble? Well, you mm-hmm. know, I
0: remember my family, they would do double mint Oh, okay. Wrigley family, yeah. Wrigley family. Although then they switched to Dentine because oh, it boy. had supposedly had these, uh, you know, Is, properties that would yes. make your teeth clean while it was yeah, giving yeah. you cavities. <laughs> yeah. <Is it laughs> yeah. But my my favorite was Blackjack. I don't know Blackjack. It was a, a licorice chewing gum. Oh. It was black. Uh huh. And it and it had this real like 1930s looking packaging I, on it. I and do not remember this. That's you I don't remember know, Blackjack. No, I do huh? not. No. From Scientific American. You know that magazine. I do. Using flexible pieces of silicon carved with tiny channels, Dr. Don Ingber, a bioengineer at Harvard, grows tissues that can mimic the complex physical interactions between cells and fluids, creating malleable three dimensional models of human organs. Seems like a good thing. That's what he does. Good thing. Over the past decade, Dr. Ingber has made more than 15 of these organ chips, including those simulating lungs, livers, intestines, and skin. And now, as described in a paper published last month, he has added a far less studied organ to the list, the vagina. The vagina on a chip, as he calls it, was made from vaginal cells donated by two women, Okay. Didn't get any further than that. The model was grown inside of silicone rubber chips the size of a stick of gum. There you go. So, you know, the stick of gum there, yeah. like my blackjack. Yeah. That's what this uh, vagina on a chip was grown in. That size of a thing. Wow. Not actually gum. Yeah. It would Forming be. channels that were responsive to fluctuating estrogen levels and bacteria. The chip successfully mimicked key features of the vaginal microbiome, the communities of bacteria that play a crucial role in the vagina's health. Researchers are optimistic that the tool could offer a better way to test treatments for bacterial vaginosis. This is fantastic. An infection of harmful microbes in the vagina, which affects an estimated 30% of women every year. Wow. The chip is more realistic than other laboratory models of the organ, Dr. Ingber said. This walks, talks, and quacks like a human vagina. (laughs) That's what he said.
1: That's him talking. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Mahler. Mahler.
0: Yeah, Mahler. He wants one of those. Yeah,
1: he he said it. We didn't. Okay, so yeah. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Well, you know, it's just a quick comment on the vagina. Yeah. You know, there's so little... Until fairly recently, so little science and medicine concerning that very vital organ. And it's taken a a male-dominated medical field a long time to finally really pay
0: attention to what they should have been a long time ago. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Because speaking of the vagina, Mm -hmm. from BBC News, you've probably seen a snake's forked tongue. But it's not the snake's only forked body part. Okay. Male snakes have forked genitals called hemipenies. Hemipenies. Okay. That look like, a bit like pink cactuses. Okay. So if you were a snake, you'd have a pink cactus where your penis Mm -hmm. is right now. Mm -hmm. But now, in a paper published this week, scientists provide the first proper scientific description of the hemiclitoris. Hmm or the bifurcated clitoris in female snakes.
1: So they got t- two, some snakes. Well, just are... like
0: their tongue, apparently. Okay, they got like this the... little okay. uh, organ that's, okay. that's like uh, bifurcated. Yeah. Wow. The study also challenges a longstanding bias, as you were saying, in biology linked to cultural attitudes and a dearth of women in the field that has left female sexual anatomy woefully understudied in many species. Yeah, yep. Good. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. only do snakes have hemiclitoris, but the organs also contain nerves and erectile tissue, suggesting they serve a reproductive function and are not merely vest- vestigial. Right. Now, it yeah. is not yeah. hanging out there. Yeah. For There's no a reason, reason. here. Yeah, for no reason, yeah. If subsequent research confirms the presence of a functional clitoris, it could challenge the assumption that snake sex is coercive, as they're thinking now. Really? In other words, a male yeah, just... just Horses himself. Now we can consider whether mating in snakes is not about coercion, but instead about stimulation and seduction. Said Megan Fowle, a author of the study. Maybe there is something that males are doing that makes the females more inclined to participate. Mm do you think about that. Uh, so, So what we're saying is there are snake charmers out there. Could be. Yeah. Mrs. Fowell's study of the hemiclitoris began when she noticed there were reams of publications describing the many shapes and sizes of snake hemipenes. Uh huh. Uh, You know, the snake and the male genitals. But only scant mentions of female snake sex organs. Scant mentions. Scant mention. Not much research. Not many. Not many papers. Now that more researchers are exploring the female side of things, we get to know more about the details of what's really there. Gotcha. Well, good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Science is
0: good. We're off to a bang here. We, <laughs> yeah. we, we are. We are. Yeah. No. If this news makes you want to chew gum, may I recommend a donation to KUCI instead? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial-free, free-form, free-speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. Good boy. Mm Mm-hmm. From The Guardian. The famous Hollywood roaming mountain lion known as P-22 is drastically underweight and was probably struck and injured by a car wildlife experts who conducted a health examination of the big cat said.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You've seen him in, in the paper these days. Way
1: back in the day when I worked for Public Works, P-22 came up yeah. a few times. I think
0: 2012 was the uh, year they, they uh, ran across him. He had been like two years old then. Yeah, yep. Yep. But lately he's been in the news a lot because he uh, snagged that uh, chihuahua up uh, near the Hollywood sign. Yeah, well, I didn't know that. Guy was walking his dog late at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was walking two dogs. Chihuahua was kind of stra- straggling. And there's actually security footage of the mountain lion sneaking up behind them and grabbing the Chihuahua. Oh, God, what a P-22. trauma.
1: P-22. What a trauma. Well, for the the snack. Yeah, for the snack. I mean, for the, yes, sorry. <laughs> for yes, the, for, the, <laughs> <trauma> <laughs> for the snack. Trauma for the snack.
0: Snack <laughs> trauma. Snack trauma, yeah. The male cougar, whose killing of a leash dog, that's right here, uh, raised concerns about its behavior, probably will not be released back into the wild and could be sent to an animal sanctuary or euthanized, depending on its health, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife said. Nobody is taking that kind of decision lightly, spokesperson John Traverso said. He added the agency understood the importance of this animal to the community and to California. And he also said, we recognize the sadness of it. P-22 was captured and tranquilized on Monday in the Los Feliz neighborhood near his usual haunt of Griffith Park. Mm -hmm. Tuesday's examination found the cat had an eye injury, probably received from being hit by a car. And more tests would be conducted to determine if the animal suffered additional head trauma. A computerized uh, tomography scan. That's where they do it in layers, you know, one by one by one. They build up like little slices. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this computerized tomography scan is scheduled for later this week to look into other possible chronic health issues that may have caused P-22's decline. P-22 was first captured in 2012 and fitted with a GPS tracking collar as part of a National Park Service study. The cougar is regularly recorded on security cameras strolling through residential areas near griffith park p22 is believed to be about 12 years old making him the oldest southern california cougar currently being studied most mountain lions live about a decade so he's already oh, i didn't quite that. old okay okay this is an old cat and old cats get old cat diseases deanne clifford the senior wildlife veterinarian with the department said any of us who have had cats at home have seen this. You know, the thing about
1: P-22 is, as you mentioned, they've been tracking him. It's been helpful in understanding his where he goes, why he goes to certain places, and become kind of a symbol for the encroachment of civilization on wild areas, wildlife areas. Uh-huh. And um, it sounds like uh, P-22 might be near the end, but uh, it's just one of those things. He's, he's become... Famous across Southern California.
0: I should put a GPS tracker on you. Yeah, you don't want to do that. You know, uh, there's a, there was a spotting of a mountain lion in Mission Viejo near an elementary school yesterday. Mm. And they've shut down the school for today. Mm. There's that. Mm-hmm. And right here, not too far from where we're standing, mm. many years ago, uh, I think I've told the story before, but uh, a mountain lion jumped on the roof of our home and I could see him through the window on the second floor, there walking around on the roof. It was quite exciting. He looked in the window right at me. <laughs> he thought, hmm. Snacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From the Oregonian, fir trees in Oregon and Washington are dying in record-breaking numbers in 2022, according to a research conducted by the U.S. Forest Service. They died in record breaking numbers in 2022. Called Firmageddon by researchers, it is the largest die off ever recorded for fir trees in the two states. In total, the Forest Service observed fir die offs occurring in over 1,900 square miles in Oregon and Washington. Oregon, however, was the hardest hit, with over 1,700 square miles of forest affected. So, by far more in Oregon. This year's numbers for the state are nearly double the acres recorded during previous die-offs. Extreme heat, including last year's record-breaking heat dome, is being investigated as a possible cause. When a drought event comes around, or this heat dome comes along to exacerbate it, it basically weakens the entire forest to a point where the insects and the diseases start to work in tandem, and this pushes a tree over the edge
1: trees could not be more important to our survival. Yeah? The loss of trees will spell the doom of humanity. Now, the loss of trees? The loss, a significant loss yeah. of trees will will hasten
0: our demise. Yeah? So, what are we going to do about it?
1: Well, there are finally serious serious efforts to promote biodiversity which will help but uh, as I was reading this week, people are still talking about 2030 as if it's this magic number that suddenly will wake up uh, uh, the, you know, in, in 2030 and everything will be better that without us doing much. But I mean, the science is we, we should have started a long time ago. And if we don't start right now, 2030 won't mean anything in terms of our trajectory of survival. Okay. On, on this planet. Well, I'm just saying biodiversity, uh, in, they're saying now that we should set aside 30% of the earth, of the arable land in, on the planet for biodiversity. And that's certainly not the trend as we're moving forward. So we need to, we need to do something quickly.
0: Well, we'd have biodiversity without trees. That's what I'm trying to parse through here. We just wouldn't have, we'd have all the, Diversity we want, well, except would, there'd be no trees. I would
1: include trees as yeah. part of the biodiversity. So what you
0: want is yeah, I would like... lots of different...
1: Well, they keep talking. Remember when they were going to plant one billion trees? Do you remember that? after they were Well, a, plant- a
0: lot of that stuff was just hyperbole. Yeah, You're going to plant all the same tree, unfortunately, is mm-hmm. what usually happens. They get some cheap-ass tree, yeah. and they plant a million of them. And then they're stuck with a uh, monoculture of trees. It's not really helping the system that much. Right, right, right. And from the San Diego Union Tribune, another thing we have to worry about. As California faces the prospect of a fourth consecutive dry year, officials with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California have declared a regional drought emergency and called on water agencies to immediately reduce their use of all imported supplies as imported. Conditions on the Colorado River are growing increasingly dire, Metropolitan Water District Chairwoman Gloria Gray said. We simply cannot continue turning to that source to make up the difference in our limited state supplies. In addition, three years of California drought are drawing down our local storage. Now, there is a story right now. There's a... uh, the underground, the aquifer in the San Fernando Valley, even though it was a Superfund site, which means it was contaminated, mm-hmm. they're now looking into setting up a way to pull that out of the ground and- uh, Purify and, the water. Yeah, purify the water. Purify is a little bit, uh, they're gonna clean it up a bit. Yeah. And it'll meet all our standards. Yeah. And I hope it works. And I,
1: I remember we talked about this quite some time ago, but again, when I was at Public Works, even in a bad year for rain, uh-huh. even in when we don't get more than five or six inches of rain, which is considered a pretty bad year, more than enough water falls out of the sky to to essentially refresh our aquifers in, in Southern California. But the problem is, as we discussed back then, is that when it hits the ground now, it's more likely to land on concrete or asphalt and it will go straight into a flood control or a drainage ditch, which will then send it out to sea. We've got to figure out ways and be proactive in in getting rid of concrete and, and asphalt wherever possible to allow it to, to seep down into the aquifer until we do that. And it's, it's it's an easy fix if we put our collective brains and our efforts into doing allowing more of the water to
0: reach the aquifers.
1: But yeah. now it's not.
0: Yeah. So. Oh, we're fine for the for what it's worth has a great water district mm-hmm. and they've been doing a lot of good work for decades right now so yeah, yeah i'm not saying all the runoff is going in the right place but we do have this mm-hmm. peter's canyon wash running mm-hmm. through the center of the city or pretty much through the center that yeah that uh, brings the flow down to the back bay and before it reaches the back bay we have a lot of uh natural filtering systems that's fantastic at, uh, that is the way to do it Officials said the call for conservation in Colorado River-dependent areas could become mandatory if drought conditions persist in the coming months, which some experts say is likely. By April, the Metropolitan Water District will consider allocating supplies to all of its 26-member agencies, requiring them to either cut their use of imported water or face steep additional fees.
1: One other thing that we could do is we could reclaim commercial water sources for our own. In other words, companies who are pulling water out of the ground to sell us plastic bottles of water, yeah. we, sh- we need to do something to stop that from happening.
0: Well, Should and the be- other thing, too, is I see a lot of agriculture leaving California. Yeah. I, 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 think and I don't right. know where they're going to go. I mean, they're they're building farms in Alaska right now.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, they're building a lot of farms inside buildings now.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. So... There's a lot of ways to do this. Yeah. I just it'll change our economy, it'll turn everything around, but this is where we're going, yep. this is where we're headed. Yep. From The Associated Press, HSBC, the largest bank in Europe, will stop funding new oil and gas fields and expect more information from energy clients over their plans to cut carbon emissions. That's good news. Mm-hmm. Activist groups have been critical of HSBC in recent years, mostly hailed the move by one of the biggest lenders in two energy companies in the world as a keenly awaited update that will drive companies toward a cleaner future. Good. Yeah. And HSBC is among the biggest banks to confirm it would not support oil and gas projects that received final approval after the end of 2021. A move the International Energy Agency has said is needed for the world to reach net zero emissions by 2050.
1: That's all well and good, and congratulations to them on that. But if you, ProPublica just put out a story recently about the amount of pipelines that are in production and the amount of money that's being invested in pipelines and oil refineries around the world, and it is truly shocking and depressing. How much money is in, so to, so to speak, the pipeline for petroleum moving
0: forward? Yeah. It is really terrifying. Well, it could be a loser, though, too. Yeah. Could, well,
1: I hope so. Sooner the better. Yes. Yeah.
0: But uh, it's still a lot of investment. Well, there's a lot of people who are desperate right now. Yeah. Desperate, even though they're incredibly rich and greedy. Yeah. They're they're desperate because they're afraid of losing their lifestyle or whatever it is. They're afraid of losing, instead of just uh, helping helping us out to find. Alternate energy sources, they're burning oil. Shame on them. Mm-hmm. Shame on them, Mahler. That's right. Give them hell, Mahler. Mahler, Mahler's been... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we got
1: it. We got it. Mahler's been over there on the phone. Sales on the uh, Elon Musk chew toy are just... I know. I can tell he's on the phone just picking up orders after orders. Sir. Thank you for calling in with the orders for the Elon Musk chew toy. Well,
0: I can see over there he has a little uh, uh, board yeah. where he's keeping track yeah. of how many sales he has. Yeah. And as of right now, uh-huh. he is getting more sales than Trump's NFT. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that was supposed to be a big deal, you know. <laughs> you, you need a, uh, an NFT of Trump in a leotard. But No. No. No, no. It's the Elon Musk chew toy. That is that is the hot ticket. In yeah. fact, there's I've I've heard
1: people talking about turn, turning that into an NFT. The chew toy, the chew toy. Yeah, yeah. with Mahler <laughs> Mahler chewing on Mahler chewing <laughs> on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Mahler. right, Mahler. Yeah, he likes the idea. Yeah, let's. Do I don't. This. Know. I wouldn't invest in okay. NFTs, Mahler. <laughs> I'd just
0: stay out of that. <laughs> You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. From Science Alert. Science Alert here. Science Alert. This is a a big story to me. All right. Now you'll figure out something negative about it. Maybe not. Maybe not, though. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, hoping that Mike will not oh, bring you're his hitting. Oh my God! Scientists studying fusion energy at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California announced that they had crossed a long-awaited milestone in reproducing the power of the sun in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Scientists have for decades talked about how fusion, the nuclear reaction that makes stars shine, could provide a future source of bountiful energy. The result announced on Tuesday is the first fusion reaction in a laboratory setting that actually produced more energy than it took to start the reaction. So they got a plus on the energy side of this. If fusion can be deployed on a large scale, it would offer an energy source devoid of the pollution and greenhouse gases caused by the burning of fossil fuels, and the dangerous long-lived radioactive waste created by current nuclear power plants. Yay. Yeah, I'll say. Within the sun and stars, fusion continually combines hydrogen atoms into helium, producing sunlight and warmth. In experimental reactors and laser labs on Earth, fusion lives up to its reputation as a very clean energy source. There was always a nagging caveat, however, In all the efforts by scientists to control the unruly power of fusion, their experiments consumed more energy than the fusion reactions generated. They have a ways to go. Yeah, way, way, uh, a long ways to go, but in the brief moment lasting less than one trillionth of a second, 2.05 megajoules of energy, roughly the equivalent of a pound of TNT, bombarded a hydrogen pellet. Nice outflowed a flood of neutron particles, the product of fusion, which carried about three megajoules of energy, a factor of 1.5 in energy gain. There you go. So it went from two to three megajoules. That's outstanding. And we- if they can just keep going with this. Yes. We mega- could have bountiful energy. Absolutely. And now all we'd have to do is get their, uh, get the greed bastards' slimy hands off of the controls
1: thank you for that opening because i think this is fantastic science fantastic unbelievable these people have been working on this for 50 years that i know of i remember 50 years ago yeah they were talking about fusion for more than their lives
0: For it's been handed down through generations yes. to get this project because, to where it is
1: because currently we're using fission and it's inefficient and it's dangerous it produces horrible horrible byproducts my only problem, and this is truly the only problem I have with what you just said, the, the sooner we get away from centralized power sources and decentralize our power sources, our ability to generate power, I think the better off we'll be. And that's the, that is the promise of renewables is you decentralize the, the power that you need to live your life. That's the only downside that I would see in all of that that you mean I couldn't build a uh, uh a, a fusion reactor in your backyard yeah I if you know what I probably will there'll probably be a, a home kit you know one of those uh-huh. popular science home kits for there is a 14 year old I remember reading about this a couple of months ago who was
0: working on a fusion reactor in his garage there you go. yeah from Reuters news service an experimental cancer vaccine from Moderna based on the messenger mRNA technology used in successful COVID-19 vaccines, has been shown to work against melanoma. Really? Yeah. A combination of Moderna's cancer vaccine and Merck & Company's immunotherapy Keytruda cut the risk of recurrence or death of the mostly deadly skin cancer by 44% compared with Keytruda alone in a mid-stage trial. The study is the first randomized trial to show that combining mRNA vaccine technology with a drug that revs up the immune system would offer a better result for melanoma patients and potentially for other cancers. The Merck-Moderna collaboration is one of several combining powerful drugs that unleash the immune system to target cancers with mRNA vaccine technology. In general, cancer vaccines are kind of a tipping point, and there are going to probably be more—a lot more—vaccines coming down the pipeline in the next five years. Yeah. So we got a melanoma one. We might have another kind of cancer vaccine. Yeah. We're on the uh, uh, on the cusp of something big here in uh, pharmaceuticals and medical solutions to problems. Two areas
1: of science. And medicine that are really seem to be bearing fruit one is you mentioned cancer the other one is alzheimer's yeah they've they as we talked about several months ago the the suspect this the thought to be origin of of alzheimer's the reason for it turned out not to be true
0: well they're they're testing that right now but they they have doubts about it, serious yeah. doubts okay. about it okay yeah.
1: and now there's research now and i just read about one yesterday in which they can put these, uh, they think they can put these little nodes in your brain, that that essentially stimulate parts of your brain. There you go. And and, and they, they can and, I get one of those no right kid, now? Yeah. No no. Kidding. And well, in each individual, the area where memory is the pre, the prevalent uh, function is different in every in a lot of people's brains it it can be in different parts of the brain so uh, the challenge will be to find those areas to sti- find your memory find your memory in there somewhere and then stimulate it and stimulate it sounds
0: good from space.com a rocket carrying the surface water and ocean topography satellite blasted off from Vandenberg Space Force base today this is uh i'm having trouble with Space Force base you know <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. I didn't. I never did like that name. I don't either. Space Force. It yeah. sounds sounds forced. Yes, it does. Yeah, sounds, I mean, it sounds yeah. If I it didn't sounds know, sounds empty. But, yeah. If I didn't know better, it's, it'd be something I think Trump came up with. Yeah, when SWAT—that's what we call the Surface Water and Ocean Topography Satellite. SWAT mm-hmm. or SWOT. SWOT. S W O T. What do you think? SWOT. I guess. SWOT. Yeah, that sounds right. I like SWAT better, but <laughs> what are you going to do? When SWOT reaches its destination 553 miles above Earth's surface, a new era in the study of climate change will begin. The satellite will be the first to survey almost all of the world's surface water, allowing researchers to consistently track the volume and movement of every ocean, river, lake, and stream on the planet. Uh This joint mission of NASA and France's National Center for Space Studies is supported by a unique alliance of Earth scientists eager to answer key questions about flooding, climate patterns, and our future water supply. The satellite will be able to see through storm clouds and accurately measure the height of floodwaters when terrestrial gauges are submerged. If a country refuses to share information about its water usage along a river, the spacecraft will be able to provide it instead. Wow. That's amazing technology. Yeah. Scientists say the one point two billion dollar mission has the potential to change our understanding of Earth's water as significantly as the microscope changed our view of the human body. Previous satellites have monitored either oceans or fresh water, one or the other. Mm-hmm. SWOT surface water and ocean topography will be the first to observe both at the same time right now we have satellites that can tell us where water is and we have satellites that can tell us what the elevation of the water is but we don't have satellites that can effectively do both of these things at the same time hence this new satellite yeah and that's the sort of thing SWOT can do it turns the world's water from 2d to 3d outstanding yeah i think so too I'm it will be incredibly
1: important to understand where water is coming from and how we will be able to somehow move it around as needed but that was a critically important uh, advancement
0: yeah Uh-oh.
1: i dropped the news the news is
0: under attack
1: well there he goes
0: saved it from the american prospect Last month, rail barons turned to Washington to avert a rail strike that could have brought the economy to a halt. Out on the Mississippi River, though, depleted rail service is fueling a separate economic catastrophe, a historic drought on the river. We talked about this a couple, maybe a month ago. Mm -hmm. A historic drought on the river has shuttered the critical point of barge transportation, leaving farmers and other shippers searching for our alternative options to get their goods to port before winter. From the waterhead in Minnesota down to the port in New Orleans, or New Orleans, barges deliver over 60% of corn and soybean exports and around $100 billion worth of cargo every year, including fuel, grain, industrial chemicals and building materials. The railroads don't have adequate capacity to serve these shippers. We can't move the the barges on the Mississippi because of the drought. And the railroads can't make up the difference. And they can't because in large part uh, of recent downsizing measures, including worker layoffs, to boost short-term profits for the shareholders. Another greed bastard scheme here. As a result, shipping prices have jumped and capacity has cratered. The collapse of markets served by the Mississippi is creating exactly the situation that politicians warned against for the country at large when a strike loomed on the horizon. A potential crisis for the smooth flow of commerce. This one can't be blamed on the rail workers, though, for having the strike. No, it's, It falls squarely on the companies themselves for downsizing to boost short-term profits. So that's where we are there. <laughs> As I say, a supply chain problem. It doesn't necessarily mean it's off our coast. Exactly right. Might be coming from the center of our country.
1: And you know that the thing about the rail strike, which I had no idea. This is this is a workforce that I don't know very much about. I had no idea that they were not allowed to take sick days.
0: Yeah, I, and this, I mean idea. it was shocking. Well, the, that's something I think is relatively new yeah. because of the of the cutting the workforce.
1: Yeah, twenty twenty two. We have. A significant part of the U.S. economy, vitally important, where the workers were not allowed to take sick days. And this is told. during COVID. During COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So if you suspected that you were getting sick, how many times did you show up when you shouldn't have? Yeah. Right. And how, and how did that impact the workforce? But not only that, it's just shocking. I mean, it's just when I heard that, I I thought it, I heard didn't hear it right, and that they were asking for twelve or fourteen days. And the, uh, the the rail. I thought they were down to
0: seven days, but maybe well, no, I... no,
1: that's what they ended up with. Yeah. But they were asking for two weeks, yeah. and I think they settled on something like five or seven, somewhere in that general, between yeah. those two. And I just, what the,
0: what? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, there you go.
0: Do you ever travel on a seven forty seven?
1: probably i think when i flew that's to europe huge yeah the bubble-headed one that's
0: yeah. the uh, double-decker one on the on the front end yeah, yeah. it is kind of a college yeah, there on the front
1: i took a charter f- through cal state northridge to europe in 19 19- i won't say when it was but uh a long time ago uh-huh. and i was on one of those it's a massive massive m- yeah plane
0: yeah from the boeing media room the last, the very last 747 jet has been made, ending a run of more than 50 years. There you go. And I say good riddance. Yeah. I think you could get like 400, 450 people on yeah. one of those. It's systems. what made air travel so damn cheap, and it also <laughs> yeah. polluted the skies and yeah. exacerbated climate change. Yes, yeah. yeah. The jet transformed an industry, bringing lengthy nonstop flights to the masses. Yep. From LA, so that from, now all people think about is, where am I going on vacation, yeah, not what can I do? Right. right. L.A. to Brussels. That's how, how far yeah. we flew, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, you're Since right. Since
0: production of the 747 began in 1967, 1,574 of the airplanes were built. God. It started carrying commercial passengers in January of 1970 when Pan Am used the 747 for a flight from New York to London the huge plane was touted as a win for middle-class travelers and a lose for the entire planet. Yep, it was under the idea that airplane prices would become more affordable if carriers could fit more people into a single flight. But that dynamic changed in later years as the aviation industry saw a growing preference for smaller, more fuel-efficient planes and less focus on crowded hub-to-hub flights. So they just put more planes up in the air. The 747 is entrenched in U.S. lore, providing the basis for Air Force One, the official presidential aircraft. That's true. Another modified version carried the space shuttle. Oh, that's right. As lasting as the 747's legacy is, Boeing says it was first produced in only about 16 months from start to finish, reflecting the combined work of of thousands of employees. The 747 was the first jumbo jet, and we mean jumbo. That's what it says here. Mm. And we mean jumbo. We're not just talking jumbo. No. We mean jumbo. We mean jumbo. It was a a six-story tail. Yeah. Yeah. And when it was introduced, the plane's 225-foot length dwarfed existing airliners. From the New York Times, when a massive police department warehouse burned... Troves of evidence gathered over decades disappeared in a towering column of smoke, along with the possibility of justice in untold cases. Debris scattered outside the Erie Basin Auto Pound in Brooklyn's Red Hook neighborhood could only hint at the legal significance of what was lost to the three-alarm blaze. The waterfront compound had held everything from souped-up vehicles seized from reckless drivers to forensic fibers from decades old murders and cold cases really yeah in addition to the property damage the fire may have destroyed the hopes and dreams of uncounted innocent people said civil rights lawyer ron Kuby. fire officials said everything inside was either lost or damaged the storage center contained items like sensitive dna evidence from burglaries and shootings as well as vehicles motorbikes and e-bikes the destruction of forensic evidence from generic information on clothing to paper trial transcripts could be catastrophic for people relying on it to appeal verdicts oh my god as well as for inmates making exoneration claims
1: oh my god
0: oh. here's a nice little one from Los Angeles Times Thomas Pynchon the famous reclusive postmodern novelist known for intricate cacophonous great american novels has decided on the institution that will house his papers and make his life known to the world and it's in Southern California. The Huntington Library has acquired the archives of Pynchon, 85, that's how old he is now, a collection of transcripts and drafts of each of his novels, handwritten notes, correspondence with publishers and research. In all 48 boxes packed with Pynchon's writings will be archived and available to scholars at the library in San Marino by the end of 2023. And I would imagine they'll have an exhibition there in a few years. I'm hoping by 2025. That's kind of the way it went with Bukowski when they got his papers. It was a few years, and then they had a very nice little exhibition.
1: Did you get through Gravity's
0: Rainbow? I got through everything. Pynchon, whose kaleidoscopic Gravity's Rainbow is often compared to James Joyce's Ulysses, simply because it's so damn long, was a major (laughs) influence on generations of authors. His novel V, published in 1963, won a William Faulkner Award for the best first novel. He wrote much of Gravity's Rainbow, his third and most celebrated novel while living in a duplex in Manhattan Beach which became the setting of his 2009 novel, Inherent Vice. When a CNN reporter tracked him down in 1997, Pynchon said over the phone, my belief is that recluse is a code word generated by journalists, meaning doesn't like to talk to reporters. (laughs) Yeah, I always like that about authors and I think it's changed so much recently and I think it sucks Mm -hmm. that you have to go on talk shows Mm -hmm and sit in front of a desk in bookstores and sign books off. And it's just turned into Well, that's marketplace.
1: I know, but, it, you know... Yeah, I know. I know. There are
0: so few authors now that can really just lock themselves up and write. And that was the, the great romance of being a writer, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not to turn into a marketer, but to, to write. Anyway, I digress. So... Being the host of film school mike yes you like narratives or documentaries documentaries huh? what about narrative documentaries
1: documentaries are increasingly becoming more hybrid than ever before introduction been, of animation into the storytelling
0: reenactments there yes. are a number so they're of trying things. to make them narratives they're
1: trying there's they're moving into that realm and some very successful and some not so oh. obviously
0: Well, our good friend Errol Morris was one of the first to to do that with uh, Thin Blue Line. Yeah,
1: exactly. And
0: he did it, what, 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. And finally, from Live Science, a new study proposes that an 11,000-year-old rock cut relief in southeastern Turkey is the oldest narrative scene on record. Archaeologists discovered the curious carvings on built-in benches within a Neolithic building about 80 miles east of the Euphrates River. Measuring roughly three feet tall and 12 feet long, the newly discovered rock-cut relief showcases two leopards, a bull, and two men, one holding a snake and the other grasping his penis. (laughs) Whoever carved the wild animals accentuated their dangerous pointy parts the leopard's teeth, and the bull's horns. But according to the study, exactly what this narrative was meant to convey is lost to time. I don't know about that. I'm not so sure it's lost to time. (laughs) I say say the message is, uh, hold on to your penis. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals weekly review podcast at weeklysignals.com weeklysignals.com Subscribe now!